Welcome back, everyone, to R2Cast number 30. Today we have Anna Jones. Anna, if you'd like to say hello to everyone. Hello, everyone. <laughs> no, I'm just going to call myself everyone for the rest of the day. <laughs> Before we get on in to another excellent episode of the R2Cast, I would just like to thank the sponsor for the show today, The Scottish Farmer. A weekly magazine highlighting everything you need to know regarding the Scottish agricultural industry. Whether it's breaking news, events happening in the sector, market reports, classified ads, or just wholesome stories happening in the industry, the Scottish farmers got it for you. Um, yeah, another, I keep saying another interesting story. I've got to start saying it. It's such a boring statement. I wouldn't be doing it if it wasn't. Um, but you could say today's is maybe a wee bit different to the norm from what we have in the r cast. You've often got farmers or people in production, but Anna's sort of core core profession is journalism, which is quite interesting given, I guess I'm slightly becoming one of a journalist, but probably a very poor one. Uh, we shall see as we go, though. Um, Anna, from from a farm, um, we'll, we'll sort of start way back when, uh, from a farm. That sounded like I'm calling you old. What I meant is... <laughs> <laughs> way back when in times of yore in the olden days when i was born that's not what i meant i, just, I said that and i realized that did not sound good um born at, well from a from a few generations of farmers uh, could you tell us a bit about that where it is maybe a bit about the farm as well and not way back when just whenever <laughs> well i'm a child of the 80s um, and I was born uh, on the Welsh border. So um, the nearest town is Oswestry and um, we're in Shropshire. And our farm is a, is a little tiny family owned beef and sheep farm on top of a hill, uh, half a mile from the Welsh border. We're just on the English side. And my family on my mum's side and my dad's side have been rooted in that area within like a 10 mile radius since the 1700s. So we haven't moved very far um, in the direct line. I've had cousins and aunties and uncles, of course, that have gone far and wide, but in the direct line, mum and dad, that's where we're from. And um, we're very much hybrids, border people. When you, when you talk to border people, they rarely identify as Welsh or English. My dad has always called himself a borderman. Um, right. we're border people and uh, so even though you know I was brought up on the English side um, and I've got a Shropshire postcode I went to school in Wales so I went to Welsh speaking uh, primary school and a secondary school I wasn't in the Welsh stream I was in the English stream but still learned Welsh um, did you know went to a Welsh young farmers club um, so growing up, my, my life was a real mix of, of English and Welsh influences. And Offers Dyke is only a couple of miles or even a mile, I think, less than a mile down the road from mum and dad's farm. So, you know, the, the ancient border between the, the English and the Welsh. So, um, yeah. So and uh, that's that's where I'm born and bred and, and grew up. It's it's quite cool that I don't know. Just just quickly before I say this, Anne, I don't know if your camera meant to go off, but I just noticed it's went off. The minute, um, if it can be on, great. If not, don't worry. <laughs> I don't know why. There we That's are. That's really weird. I don't know how it did that. <laughs> what, at what point did it go off? Uh, just about the, the, the just about a quarter way through you speaking. Oh um, no! Do you want me to do okay. it again? Oh no, it's fine. It's okay, fine. Cool. It's absolutely grand. <laughs> um, the what what what's quite interesting is sort of listening to that. You know the 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 border being there, but it 
it not being a border, it almost being a, a, a place in itself. It's, it's quite interesting where you said my my ex-partner's family was from Clan Gochlin, so that must be pretty pretty nearby. So Yes, it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I know it well. It's a beautiful <laughs> yeah. part of the world. Yeah, very. And it's you know, um when we went down, it was quite interesting because it's actually very like Scotland. It's it just seems very similar. Um, so a very very nice upbringing. Um, uh, <laughs> I still can't get out of my head. I said way back when. I, <laughs> uh, I, was, bo- I was born in nineteen eighty one. See that's only that's not, that's I'm a nineties. It's only one away. It's fine. Yeah, um, <laughs> knocking on a bit now though. I turned forty this year, which was scary, <laughs> and uh, I really didn't like it. Not a fan <laughs> of being forty. Oh, it's. There's no difference. It's just another day, isn't it? Anyway, it is, yeah. Think of it we're that focusing way. on the wrong thing here. Is, uh, <laughs> I've, I've set a, a, a negative precedent for this podcast by accident. Um, <laughs> yeah, I went on. The, I talked about how old I am, and uh, that was that. <laughs> this is the thing. I, I come on here to talk to a journalist and try and do a good job and absolutely ruin it. Anyway, here we are. Oh, that's um, great. It makes it different. <laughs> and that is what I definitely am. <laughs> um, yeah, so, so brought up on a farm... Uh, interested that you you would say in, in this farming side but always from quite a young age I've done some research by the way uh, quite a young age interested in journalism which really interests me because that's not something many folks say you know you don't hear many folks say in school I want to be a journalist I think this is really interesting so I'm looking forward to where this is what it was that made that happen why did that come about <laughs> uh Okay, so I wanted to be a journalist for a long time. It was about, it was young, actually, 12, 13, maybe. But it's a very uncool reason why I chose that profession. Um, Because I always knew that I wanted to have like a job in the city, because I always used to think women that lived and worked in the city were really cool. And, (laughs) uh, you know, I always used to have images uh, when I was really young. Like I used to want to be a lawyer and I would stride around with a briefcase. And, you know, I just I used to really, you know, when you watch like um, power women on like films or something and they really stride and march and stomp their feet in their heels. And it's just like I'm so busy. I've got somewhere to go. And I always used to think, oh, I want to be like one of those women. And um, and then it, so it was a lawyer for ages because I thought that sounded cool. And um, and then when I was about 12 or 13, uh, do you remember those? I think they were called like PSE classes or something in school. Do you remember? Personal and social education. Is that... Yeah, that's yeah. it. And then they'd come <clears throat> in and they'd try and develop you for, you know, adult life when it comes and, you know, career development and all these kind of things. So then we had this PSE teacher woman who went around the class and said, what would everyone like to be when they grow up? <laughs> and um, I was going to say lawyer. <laughs> didn't really know what a lawyer was and um and then one of the girls in my class said a journalist and I don't think I'd ever heard the word journalist before I knew what it meant immediately and I suddenly thought oh my god that's me that is I love writing I love talking and I'm really bloody nosy (laughs) I was like, that's what I want to be. So lawyer went out of the window, never thought about being a lawyer ever again. And thank goodness I'm I'm a terrible details person. I would not be a good lawyer. But um, I love being a journalist. And from that moment, 
it just became my complete and utter focus. Uh, and all my work experience doing, during GCSEs and A-levels was on the local newspaper in Oswestry, then at the local BBC radio station in Shrewsbury, and then went on to study journalism at university in Preston. And then when I left university, I was really lucky and managed to get a job as a writer on, on a series of magazines straight away. And then it kind of went from there to local newspapers, regional newspapers, and then eventually the BBC. So um, if that girl in my class had never said journalist, I could be a lawyer right now. I'm probably really bored. So uh, I'm, really, I'm really thankful to her. I, I love the, the, the I guess, oh, the belief you have in 13-year-old you that the decision you made that day was where you would be. <laughs> yeah, I tend to be quite, you know, I tend to be quite single-minded once I make my mind up on something. I wish I had that ability. Um, I, I think if we were following the same things here, I would be at WrestleMania next month competing. I mean, that's the, that's sort of where my goals were as a twelve-year-old. <laughs> Probably still, to be honest. But um, yeah, so so had a few places at local papers, work experiences, that sort of thing, um, and then moved on to to the BBC. What what did that mean? What was that? What what what's that involved? Well, when I was on. Um regional newspaper in the in the West Midlands, the Express and Star, which is a big daily newspaper in the West Midlands. Uh, I, was, I was covering sort of general news and features and really loved that job. But it was around that time that I started to feel that pull back to agriculture. So even though I haven't inherited what my dad has, that special X factor to farm, I've definitely inherited the passion for agriculture, that, right. that, that innate interest. Um, is there and it, it is in me and I really felt that I wanted to do my bit by somehow bringing my journalism career and my agricultural background together and uh, the the only way uh, again a single-minded decision I decided that it was going to be country file I was going to work on country file because I used to watch it it was on on a Sunday morning then about 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning and uh, I used to watch it and think, oh, I really want to work on that programme. I just saw it as the perfect blend of, of my skills. So um, I just started doing really weird things, like writing the names down of the producers and then sending them letters and, uh, <laughs> and kind of like, um, you know, articles that I'd had in the newspaper, sort of sending them into the BBC. And um, eventually I got a six-week contract at the BBC, not on Country File, on a different programme called The Nature of Britain, which was presented by Alan Titchmarsh and went out on BBC Two. This was way back, this was like 2006. And right. it was a six week contract. And I gave up a staff job on a newspaper with, you know, holiday, pension, all of the stuff for a <coughs> six week contract. And I was like, this is a big gamble. This might not pay off. And um, on the last day of that contract, I swear to God, a job for a researcher came up on country file but it was internal you could only apply for it if you were bbc staff and i had i think had like six hours left of my bbc contract before i was shoved out and i was external again so i was like oh my god a researcher job on country file i've got to apply for this and you know and i don't know if you've ever filled out a bbc application form it is very in-depth it takes a long okay. time so i think i was up till like midnight to get this in in time and uh, yeah, and then I got an interview 
which was terrifying. And then I got the job as a researcher on Country File in September 2006. And that really was the beginning of the rest of my career. Everything since that moment has been focused on rural affairs and agriculture. Um, and that's really where I started the road towards becoming a specialist journalist, um, which has kind of led me to where I am now. It's that, that six week opportunity is one of those ones that certainly when I hear it is you couldn't say no, even though you are getting rid of holidays and stuff. You know, I, I think that's something you've got to jump at. Um, I will yeah. actually come back to Countryfile. But there's one thing I read when I was doing my research um, that I really wanted to mention. Uh, you did your you didn't do a dissertation, but you did a, a documentary on foot and mouth. Um, yes. Now that that interests me because I mean, foot and mouth. God, what age was I? I, I remember. I think it'd have been four to yeah two thousand and one. I remember my dad talking about it on the. Uh, I remember dad watching the telly and hearing this thing foot and mouth, and he was really worried about it. And I'm like, Dad, I've never seen you so worried since like. Celtic beat Rangers that's the last time I've seen this why is this such an issue it's fine it's not our sheep they're okay uh, and uh, I never got it obviously because I was too young and then was it 2007 I think the second outbreak was yeah um, yeah but what 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 did that involve that must have been quite interesting to make that was it at the time or was it just after so two um 2001 which was foot and mouth I actually went, uh, I was living in the Netherlands dur during the, the, the height of the foot and mouth outbreak with all of the, the burning pyres of animals and the, the horror. I was actually out of the country. I was living in the Netherlands because um, I, I was doing this exchange scheme. It was called the Erasmus scheme. Um, and yeah. you could go and you could go and study for a semester in another country. Uh, so I was kind of doing journalism stuff there. And uh, even though I was writing to my mum and getting letters back, it was still kind of, mum and dad weren't on email, so it was still a bit snail mail-ish even then. And mum was writing to me about this terrible time they were going through. And I was worried about them, but in that way that, uh, was I 18, 19, something like that? Um, you're also a little bit wrapped up in yourself at that time. You're yeah. having so much, I'm a student, I'm having so much fun. And I knew there was this terrible thing happening back home. And I knew that mum and dad were having this awful time, but partly to do with the distance and partly to do with, I think as a teenager, you only have a limited capacity to understand things because you are an inherently selfish being as a teenager and a student. Um, I was just, I just felt very, detached from it all and um anyway when I got home from the Netherlands it really hit me what my family had been through they and they in many ways had it roughest because they didn't get foot and mouth so they just had to keep everything locked down and the stories dad said about that lambing time it was just awful what he was telling me you know that having to lamb outdoors um, in the rain and the mud and, he, and you know, not being able to bring back the animals. And he, he told me this one story that really stuck with me all these years of how the, the ground had dried up a bit and, you know, everything had dried up a little bit and wasn't quite so muddy. And, but all of the mud had dried onto the animals, onto the, onto the lambs and onto the sheep, and they just dried into this claggy mud. And he remembers going to feed them and he said it was almost like musical instruments. You could hear the sheep hear running down the field. 
and all of this dried mud clacking and clanging away on them. And he said it was like music coming down the fields. They were like drumming with dried yeah. mud. And just the thought of that and what dad, the stress and the pain that dad must have been through. We did, we did lose some animal, animals that were on some rented ground, some lowland ground away from the family farm, quite, you know, sort of 20 odd miles away or yeah. whatever. And those had gone, but the core farm hadn't got it. So anyway, so that was that. And then in my third year, you, you get to choose, you can do a dissertation, you can do whatever you want. And I decided that I wanted to do radio. I've always loved radio. And I was going to make a documentary about the recovery from foot and mouth. And I suppose in some ways it was my way of learning about it, having been away the previous year. And then I made this documentary. And, and even then I realized that potentially I had something to offer in the world of agricultural journalism because I was the only one on my course that had anything to do with the countryside, anything to do with farming, any interest in it, really. Everyone else made completely different <coughs> topics. And um, not only did I have an interest in it, I was able to talk to farmers in the way, in a way that other journalism students weren't able to. I don't know how. I don't know whether it's a, a type of conversing or a, a language they pick up in me, an energy they pick up on. I don't know. I think they felt a kind of kinship and they shared their stories with me in an incredibly honest way, broke down in tears, told me exactly what it was like. And farmers can be suspicious with their stories. They can be really guarded. A big barrier comes up. If they think you won't understand, they won't tell you. But if they feel safe in your hands and feel that you understand and empathize with them they will tell you things that are unbelievable and they did and that and that documentary was the first time I thought my god I can I can go into these rural communities and ask questions that maybe people who are not from a farming background couldn't ask because they wouldn't know to ask and perhaps wouldn't have the confidence to ask and I can bring that information back into the heart of the city back to my journalism college and I played it for the people on my course and people are in tears and these are kids that come from Manchester and the middle of Bolton and big northern urban areas and they were in tears listening to this documentary um because they'd had no idea they were like I had no idea that was what it was like for farmers and um yeah and I got a first so I was like well this bodes well, I'll do more of this. And um, yeah, and I, I love doing it and uh, I've built a good career out of it. The first is one thing that eluded me in both my degrees. I got a, a <laughs> 3% or 2% or something like that from memory off a distinction of my master's. But but you guys have got it easy. You get to do a three year uh, before you can do your dissertation. We've got to do four. Yeah, um, and I didn't, get, uh, I, let me not oversell myself. I didn't get a first overall. I got a first, <laughs> I got a first for that documentary. Overall, I got a 2-1 because the other modules I was not as good at. Like, <laughs> <laughs> no, so, if, you, yeah. if you find the thing you can focus on, that's that's a good thing. Um, <laughs> yeah. it, it's, it's interesting you say that uh, the outside lambing being an issue. I assume were they, were they inside lambing normally? And then, normally, yes. Yeah, uh, I, I, we've, we've been inside lambing now since 2013 where we had a bad thing. It wasn't foot and mouth, but we had a snow that 
Oh, I remember. Yeah. 250 or 300 stock unaccounted for from memory. And, you know, we got that shed the January, the snow came in March and it, it doesn't bear thinking about what would have been. Yeah. But now having lambed outside for what, inside for what will be our ninth year this year, I don't really know what it would be like to go back to full outdoor lambing. I think that in itself is a challenge, you know, uh, well, not more than a challenge. Um, but yeah, just just a horrible time, really. Uh, yeah. Too too young to to really appreciate it myself. And the only thing that that ever impacted me was livestock weren't allowed at our two thousand and seven show because it was at mid July the two thousand and seven one from memory, and we were August. That's literally the only impact. I was like, why are we not getting a show? You know, and I still didn't really understand it as a whatever it was. Um, Erasmus, I just thought I'd quickly ask about Erasmus. We had students through Erasmus uh, at our university coming to, to Scotland. Which it's still going a, on? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Erasmus oh, is that makes thing, me yeah. so happy. <clears throat> Brilliant. Um, how did that go for you? Uh, good. It was great. The stuff yeah. that I learned was mad <clears throat> and not really, yeah, it, it was, <laughs> it was, um, it was a fantastic experience. And it was the first time I'd done something completely independent like that. And um, and I think it probably gave me my love of travel. Um, I, I'm an insatiable traveler. I absolutely love it. And, and I think probably it started then. Um, and I made, you know, it was just brilliant opportunity to make really good friendships with people who aren't like you, that speak different yeah. languages. You know, I, my friends were French, Irish, Brazilian, German, you know, these to, to live that kind of like expat student um, lifestyle with all mm. these people that were, were so different to me. Um, I think it kind of gave me an, a curiosity about the world and different people, different languages, different cultures. Uh, and actually the, the, um, what we had to do when we were there was it was a, it was a strange. I always remember it was a slightly strange assignment we had to make an in-flight magazine that was aimed at African people living in Europe. So it was really niche, like really niche. So I remember it just being like, what the hell do I write about? And, um, you know, having to research stories that would be interesting to that audience. And uh, in the end, I found... um, a shop there was this tiny shop I was living in this Dutch town t- called Tilburg which isn't that far from Eindhoven and um, I think it's Eindhoven I'll double check that on the map uh, in the south and um, yeah and I found a, 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 a West African shop selling lots of like interesting foods and fabrics from West Africa and I interviewed the woman running the shop about how she'd arrived in the Netherlands and set up a business there and how she'd brought African culture over to Europe and even that I mean I'm not sure I would ever get set that assignment if I'd stayed in Preston for three years so (laughs) yeah it was it was great to kind of build that kind of understanding of different cultures and things so yeah it was it was slightly strange but I'm really really glad that I did it because it was one of those eye-opening and crucially mind-opening experiences uh, which I think is really important to have when you're at such an impressionable age. Yeah. No, I mean, I don't think I could guess where in the world you would expect to find such a niche project. To be <laughs> yeah, <I know. laughs> it's it was such the... a randomly niche one as well. It's not it just was. niche to here. It's, it's 
we are in a part of Europe, so let's focus purely on all of Europe for African people coming here. Very, very niche. Yeah. <laughs> it was kind of like, it was the in-flight magazine bit that yes, I found uh-huh. weird. Because yeah. I was like, if it's just a newspaper, that that's great. But it was like, it has to be an in-flight magazine. And I was like, I don't know, what, what do you do in an in-flight magazine? It, it, like, you just put the price of Pringles in it or something. <laughs> so <laughs> just, it was was mad but um yeah it was great and I made friends for life that I'm still in touch with as well no I mean I didn't do Erasmus I, I, did, I did my undergrad and my master's both in Scotland but my master's was in Glasgow uni and there was 23 of us 17 were Chinese there was someone from the states someone from uh, France someone from Nigeria and three of us from Scotland and the stuff I learned that year from a, a cultural perspective was brilliant it was yeah almost better than what you learned um, and is it is it safe as a scheme? Because I worry because it's an EU thing, isn't it? We're, we're not oh, going to lose point. it as know. a result of Brexit, are we? Well, it's, it's funny. It's a <clears throat> I remember Erasmus being a thing because we we always had a we always had one or two students join our course about January. It would would happen most years, a, but it's since I've been a lecturer, it's not happened. Now we know why that is. <laughs> yeah. uh, COVID being the reason there, but I, I don't know. Uh, something I should probably look into because it's a brilliant thing. It doesn't it have to be called Erasmus, but that sort of thing is brilliant. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so, country file. Uh, you were there uh, for quite a while. Um, what, what, what was involved in researching for country file? And uh, I just can't, I can't even begin to imagine what's involved in that. They go everywhere. It's just huge. Uh, so yeah, maybe even some highlights would be good to hear. <clears throat> Gosh, yeah. Well, I was I was on Countryfile. I was at the BBC as staff for twelve years, and most of that time was spent on Countryfile. I'd go off and do other little projects, but I'd yeah. always boomerang back to the mothership, which is Countryfile. And so I started off as a researcher, researcher, researcher. I never know, but um, <laughs> and uh, so. And the job was about finding the stories, but also setting up the stories and making the logistics of a shoot happen. So, you know, half of the job was journalism and the other half of the job was making sure you can get all of these people in the right place at the right time and you can get the planes and the boats and the trains and the cars to all link up and get everyone there and um, make sure that they got a schedule and they've got long enough to film and stuff so you had to have a really journalistic editorial head but also a real um a a good organizational head as well so it's sort of a job of two halves and um the journalism side was always my favorite and that just involved talking to loads of people on the phone coming up with story ideas and then trying to get the stories past the gatekeepers the producers (coughs) who are hard nuts to crack so if you came to them with a crap story, they would sniff it out in like, you could try and dress it up any way you like, like, you know, oh, I'm going to try and put a bit of polish on this turd. They would, they would know it's a turd and they would turn <laughs> it down. So, you know, they, they, the producers at the BBC are, are so brilliant and uh, they really put you through your paces. So I learned, it was a steep learning curve and, um, you know, there were certain stories that came up all the time so the winter the winter is hard on country file because not much to see it goes dark so early the countryside looks brown and twiggy and sticky and yeah so you and you'd ring up conservation organizations you'd be like oh is there anything interesting happening that we could come and film for country file 
and they'd be like, oh, well, we'll be doing some footpath maintenance and some scrub clearance. And you'd be like, oh, okay. And um, so you'd, <laughs> you'd go to the producer and be like, right, well, I've been speaking to the wildlife trusts and they said that they could get our presenter doing a bit of scrub bashing. And I thought scrub bashing sounds a bit more exciting than scrub clearance. <laughs> and you could just see the producers just being like, we are not doing scrub clearance again. We have done it a billion times. Go and find something else. And be like, oh, okay. So, you know, you, you, this was the sort of the, the challenge of Country File. And you just had to be creative about what the stuff that you found. But I was really, I did some amazing things. Um, I've traveled all over the country. Um, I've been sort of husky sled racing in the Cairngorms of Scotland with Matt Baker and Julia Bradbury at the time. Um, I traveled over to Denmark and the Netherlands making investigative films there with Tom Heap. Um, I've been over to Northern Ireland, filmed pigs on a boat, and uh, I've, there's, there's just all sorts of stuff that I've done, and it's really hard to kind of pick, pick things out. One of my favourites was actually hop picking in Kent. I always remember that shoot. I really enjoyed it with John Craven, and um, it was a bit of a social history film because we talked about how um, people used to travel out from the east end of London to the hop fields of Kent as their holidays um you know august september time and they would pick hops and we found this amazing black and white archive of eastenders going out and picking the hops in the, right. at harvest time <laughs> so you know it wasn't just always about where you went on country file it was what you learned through the research and what the <laughs> archive showed you about the countryside and food production over the years um and then so and then i kind of moved my way up the ladder from researcher to director and then as a director, you're starting to take on a lot more responsibility. You're the one in charge of writing the scripts, directing the presenters, directing the crews. You're really starting to become sort of the linchpin of a film. Like, you know, you're managing the researcher, you're sort of guiding them. And then you're also turning their research into a script that, you know, so that that's stressful. That is a stressful job. It's a big learning curve. And I found that part of my career hard, stepping up from researcher to director, it, it was tough. Um, and then from there, I went to producer in more recent years, and that's really getting higher sort of responsibilities, really starting to manage people there. And rather than being responsible for one film, like a six or seven minute film, you're starting to take responsibility for a whole hour long program. So you've got to have a real editorial focus across a whole hour um, so you can see how the responsibilities grow yeah, yeah, yeah. up and up and up. Um, but yeah, it's a, fan, it's a fantastic programme to work on, um, you know, and over the years I've been there, John Craven, Adam Henson, Tom Heap, Charlotte Smith, you know, I count these people as friends, you know, that we've had a lot of nights in hotels after long shoots together, sort of chatting away, and you, you really build this incredible team spirit because you, mm. you get very wet very cold just standing around and the thing is work you have to be really hard to work on country file people think it's tiny file people think it's soft it is hardcore because at least if you're a farmer and you're outside in the elements at least you're working to keep yeah. you warm you're using your body you're, you're lifting bales you're you know feeding sheep you're walking around doing stuff to work on country file you go out in that weather rain wind hail fog whatever it is and you just stand there in it you just stand there you, you know filming like static just freezing your ass off like 
it, you have to be made of tougher stuff to stand still in harsh weather conditions than actually be working and keeping warm. That is completely true. Now, I mean, <laughs> I to compare the content I make to country fell seems insane, but um, I did a lot of making videos for students and you were standing still trying to set up cameras. And one day I was doing this fencing tutorial and I was I just want to batter and stabs. But the other times I'm trying to keep the camera still. Oh God. Absolutely great. Trying to operate a camera with in the snow when your hands have gone completely numb. And I get that Reynards thing where all your fingers go white. And you've just got these inanimate stumps on the end of your arms that are just not working. And you're trying to write notes on your clipboard and you can't even feel the pen. Like I have been frozen to the bone on that program. <laughs> like like keeping your hands up with your knees. Like <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Honestly. But um, yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't change any of it. Just just a hopeless plug for you listeners, if you haven't been around for long, uh, if you would like to see the people on the other side. Uh, we did a podcast with Adam Henson back R two cast number twenty five at Christmas time, so have a look at that if you want. Um, the yeah, no, it's, it's you. You think I think a lot of people think of TV as just oh, it's just TV. You just you're on the TV, you're producing TV or whatever, you collect a big paycheck. That's what a lot of people see TV as. And oh my god, <laughs> and I absolutely know that is not the case, right? I no. Don't. Light, absolutely not. very light work with the bbc up here in scotland i do here and there um and it's just not the case no. <laughs> it's, it's not talking anywhere near the level you've been involved in but and, um, hey, and on the ba- big paycheck thing it's a very very competitive industry and any farmer who understands supply and demand will know that if there is an oversupply the price goes down TV is no difference. There is an oversupply of people that want to work in that industry. So the wages are not good. They don't have to be good because there's like a billion people that want to do the job for like nothing. And the amount of people that start off their TV careers and literally work for nothing Mm -hmm. just to get in. So, um, you know, the idea that it's well paid is a total myth. Total myth. so yeah and it is hard work i think it's on average it's one hour of filming for one minute of television i could believe that yeah yeah it is that like and i've made three minute films that have taken all day to film and like start off at eight finish it when it goes dark to make to make three and a half minutes Um, and to think of how much on demand stuff is out there it's absolutely insane. Yeah, I had, I had, a, I had a, a couple of guys come over and film film on the farm one day for a, a thing, and they, we filmed from, I would say, ten to about two, and I was oh class, it's going to be like twenty minutes about Wallace. Uh, <laughs> it was a minute and fifty one seconds. <laughs> you know, like uh, yeah, no, it's 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 a different game from what you see, and I think a lot of people don't don't know that. Um, I say that as if I'm involved. Uh, but it's true. I'm constantly preparing farmers. Like they, they will be there all day, um, and they, you'll see you'll be on telly for about twenty seconds. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I filmed that in October, and I still know the full lines because <laughs> I said it like four million times. Like, yes. Sourcing locally—that's what does it for me. <laughs> and that, actually, you know, it's burned into your brain. Yeah, exactly. I was like, can I take that out and put useful stuff back in? <laughs> I hope you've kicked your feet up and got comfy and enjoying another fantastic episode of the R2Cast with another really interesting guest. I would just like to quickly take another second to plug 
the sponsors of the show today, the Scottish Farmer, and I would strongly advise you to go out and pick one up this week and see even more of the fantastic people that are in our industry. Um, you've moved on from a uh, from Country Fail to work freelance. I assume that's that that's got to be a big jump, is it not? It's got to be. Well, it's, you're obviously creating your own work when you're working full time, but you're sort of trying to find your own, I take it. And what, what's that led you into? <clears throat> well, it, that was another mad thing that I did. Uh, <laughs> <sort of. laughs> so um, I did a Nuffield scholarship. Have you had many Nuffield farming scholars? On I haven't had any. And this was my next point. I've got it written down here that I was going to cover. Yeah. So, <laughs> Tell you us about that. Yeah, so Nuffield, Nuffield farming <laughs> scholars are. Um, a strange breed. Um, so I did a scholarship in 2016, 2017, and I, I travelled around the world looking at the coverage of agriculture in the mainstream media and how farming issues are portrayed to the public. And um, it filled my head with all these ideas. It really made me feel like I wanted to have a voice and I wanted to do something to help a situation that I thought wasn't great. And um, at the BBC, you are so busy. You're also uh, a tiny cog in a massive machine. And it is not your job to have a voice. It is your job to put your shoulder to the wheel with everyone else and, 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 and work at it, which um, you know I've done for so many years. And I think 2018, I came back having had this mind-blowing experience on my Nuffield. I just couldn't go back. I couldn't go. I, it was like trying to put a square peg back in a round hole. And I just felt like I've just, I've got to go my own way now. I've got to go my own way and find a voice um, of my own. And so I decided, oh God, it took me a long time. I mean, I'm making it sound like I, you know, had this epiphany and that, and then on Monday handed in my notice and it was all great. Like <laughs> if my partner Alex was here, he'd be shaking his head going, it was a nightmare. I was, it, oh, it took me, took me two years and I was just oh, stressing out. It's like, what about, what about if giving up a pension and giving up my staff job and I'll never find work again. And I don't want to, I don't want to, I had this real fear of upsetting my bosses on country file because I, I have so much loyalty to that program and I owe so much to that program. I would not be doing what I'm doing if it wasn't for country file and if it wasn't for farming today. So I felt this, oh God, I don't want to upset them. I don't want them to think I'm not grateful for all the opportunities. So I really hauled myself over the coals, but then I did eventually decide to leave, which it was re handing over that letter of resignation at the BBC was the hardest thing I think I've ever done, actually. Um, so there I was out, out doing it, going it alone. And you're right, freelance is about finding your way. But the one thing I'm very, very grateful for is... Um, I'd already build, built quite a big foundation for myself and I hadn't really recognized that. And so when I did go out into the freelance world, I was like, oh, oh, a couple of people know who I am and they've offered me work. And, oh, this isn't as scary as I thought it would be. And, and it hasn't been as scary as I thought it would be. The only problem is now is that I just never stop working. I, I really struggle to switch off. Right. Yeah, it, I can imagine. The boundaries have gone and suddenly you just fill all your time with work and that's something I'm still getting to grips with how to say no <laughs> so so are you are you working as producer director everything or what it just oh god all sorts of stuff <laughs> <laughs> like 
honestly, uh, so I do. So when when I when I go back to TV, um, I'll be a producer director. So if I'm working for Country File, I'll go back as a producer. Oh, so you still um, do some stuff with Country yes, File? Yes. So I've done right, the, okay. the, the Harvest yeah. special for Country File in 2020 and 21. I produced, uh, and then I also direct very occasionally, and that's the TV side of my job. Uh, the radio side of my job can be anything from producing, reporting, occasionally presenting. I'll stand in for Charlotte Smith and Anna Hill on Farming Today very, very occasionally. Um, and other, other radio programs like On Your Farm. And then I have my own project called Just Farmers, which is a bit of a charitable endeavor, really. That's the kind of altruistic thing that I do. I'll talk about it later. Then there's the writing with the book. And then there's the public speaking and conference chairing. I do a lot of that. Uh, there's something else I'm missing out as well. <laughs> there's oh, training. Me and my other half, we set up this thing where we train people how to make videos on their phones because he's a cameraman, like a, a director cameraman. Right. So um, I am in a situation where I have taken on gargantuan amounts of things. <laughs> and it's fabulous. But I'm not sure it's always great. <laughs> it's it's it's. I mean, we talk about this work-life balance thing, don't we? And uh, yes, I don't have any. <laughs> you, well, this is it. You just have a work balance, which doesn't work. And well, it, yeah. it does work, and it's it's exciting, isn't it? And chasing that thing is exciting, but it's you do sometimes have to switch off. You uh, do, and it's it's sometimes it's hard. If you're somebody, I mean, what a, what a great honour it is to enjoy what you do for a job, and yeah. I'm sure Wallace, you feel the same. No, 100. Like, percent I see it all the time. Oh. Yeah. It, it, it is it is a winning lottery ticket in life to be able to do a job that you love. So many people, and I, I plenty of people I know, even me back in the day, did jobs I didn't like. And um, the problem is when you love it, you do just want to do it all the time. And because you love it, you don't recognise that there's a cost. And actually there is. So, um, yeah, that's, a, that's an ongoing journey, learning where the boundaries are and where the lines are. But... Um, ultimately i do feel really lucky to love what i do i really do no it's it, I mean, lottery tickets a good example i mean <laughs> my uh, my work laptop was having issues with wi-fi so it i've got it over the weekend and i got back here and i was like what do some work <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is so sad <laughs> my fingers exactly. are itching i need to type exactly. yeah. yeah um just a complete uh, random one to ask you here uh the the video editing do you use LumaFusion or not oh my god no what is that well it, it, it's from what i can understand i can't find a better one on apple um i use LumaFusion to edit all this stuff to edit everything i do whether it's on my phone whether it's on my ipad LumaFusion is what i use because you can't get premiere pro on them and i'm not quite at the stage of buying a computer to do it um so yeah, no, I just wondered, just when you're talking about on the phone, that was that was certainly my go-to, was LumaFusion. Right. Oh, well, we should talk about that. Um, for videos, we... Oh, there's loads. There's loads of yeah, no, no. And we're And one of the things we do on the workshop is I'm a Samsung baby. I've always been an Android girl. My other half is an Apple boy. He's He does... Everything is Apple. So, he sounds really cool. Yeah, he's the, <laughs> he's the cool one. He's got his Mac. His MacBook Air. And I've got this like big lumpy PC. And, um, but I, I've just always been like that. And actually it's useful because we can then bring that into the training and just talk to people about how these two things do not talk to each other. It's a flipping nightmare 
trying to get stuff between the two. And um, honestly, the amount of times we have been up late at night, something has been filmed on my Samsung phone. I've transferred the files for him to edit it on his Mac and everything's out of sync because they have different frame rates and they don't talk to each other. And I, I just hate the, this. Why can't people just work together and make systems that work together? But that would be money. <laughs> very naive of me thing to say. Um, but it is it is useful because if we're experiencing those frustrations, it's easy, you know, it's good for the people that do our courses yeah. because I hate nothing more than going and doing a course where everything just works seamlessly for the trainer. And then you go home and have a go at it and nothing works for you. And uh, so, yeah, we can sympathize with people. Just, just a little solution. I love when little rabbit holes like this are, are found. Um, the, for, so Airbridge is a, a transferring app that has a Android and iOS compatibility and it's free up to 20 gig. So Oh my God, that'll that, change my life. That might have changed some things, yeah. Airbridge. Um, Airbridge, yeah. So you, you have the video on your phone, your laptop, whatever, and you send it via email but it comes through Airbridge. It's not really sent via email and then you just download it through a link. <coughs> it's really good. Um, that sounds amazing. You need to come and run our course. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the R2 class where we don't just cover the people in food and farming. We also talk about video editing. Uh, and also uh, the benefits of talking to someone born in the 90s compared to someone born <laughs> in the 80s. Really closer to the 2000s, but it doesn't matter. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> God, rub it in, while, why don't you? Um, the, I mean, the Nuffield scholarship sounds brilliant there. I mean, just traveling the world, following what you're interested in. And I'm going to ask you a question that you might not want to answer, and that's absolutely fine if you don't. What do you think about the Panorama program on dairy farming last week? Oh, I, I haven't seen it yet, and here's why. We were running a workshop for farmers in Bristol. Um, right. So the, the project that I was talking about, Just Farmers, um, we actually do these... Um, communications and, and sort of confidence building workshops for groups of independent farmers we bring 12 or 13 of them together and we do sort of two days intensive training and we mm -hmm. spend all the time with them so we were on our way down to Bristol for that and it was such a busy couple of days so it, it's on my what to watch list sorry I've seen some of I've seen some of the fallout and I talked to my dad about it on the way back from Bristol and me and my dad talked on the phone about it for ages and he was giving his impressions. Um, I from what I've heard, it sounds like another expose of poor welfare on a dairy farm. Does that pretty much sum it up? So I, th I think that part in itself is good. I think it's the sort of I again. <laughs> I can't comment because I've told you about three times I've watched nothing. Um, but from, from what I've heard and, and from what I understand, yes. And I think we have to see that side. And that's good that we're talking that bad welfare happens and we have to get rid of that. I think it's sort of the idea that it comes with, to the people that don't know about it, it sort of comes with a sort of tarring of the same brush type mm. idea, you know. Um, but no, maybe easier for you that you haven't seen it. <laughs> but a conflict My dad was telling before. me about some of the images in it and he was... He was absolutely shocked. And right. yeah, so we, yes, the, and you could apply that same thing to lots of documentaries that come out mm -hmm. about farming. It's about, oh, it's about the one bad apple. But I don't know. I need to see it. But I was yeah. going to say that, you know, it is important that we see examples of 
what is going on because could not agree more yet we yeah. need we need to i do think we need to have more accountability amy did you see amy jackson had put a tweet um have a look for i think her name is at oxtail on twitter but she put a tweet on about more accountability within farming and about people working in the industry standing up and calling out these people from within you know stop waiting from people on the outside to call it out if we could call it out first on the inside and be ahead of it that that would show that we're serious about rooting out this i think that gives us much more credibility as as the farming demographic as well yeah no very very good outlook on it um which you've just mentioned, uh, this is actually why uh, contact was originally made between myself and Anna. Uh, Anna is uh, now an author. Well, you've probably been an author before, but you get an author. Of no, 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 no. New no. author. Oh, are you? Perfect. Excellent. Uh, very good. Um, it is called, I'm, I'm going to say the title, and that's about all I've got, and I'm going to leave the rest to you. It comes out on, this is coming out on Friday, so it comes out on Thursday, which will be the 3rd of March. Um, so if you're interested in the relationship crisis between town and country, definitely didn't read that, uh, get Anna's new book, Divide. Have you got Have you got it there by any chance, Anna? Yep, perfect. There we are. It's Can a really see? nice cover, by the way. I love, love it. Cover. And uh, yeah. I've, never, I've never met the man who designed it, but his name is Paul Palmer Edwards. I need to track down who that man is because I think it's absolutely fantastic. I'm really, really chuffed with it. Paul, and if you're listening, uh, get in touch. <laughs> I have looked for him on social media and can't find him. So, um, but I, I will find him. I will find you, Paul. <laughs> you're a journalist, you're good at this. <laughs> <laughs> Say thank you for this. Um, yeah, so it's, uh, I've, this has just arrived. Uh, I opened it night before last, uh, a big cardboard box of the first 10 books arrived and opened it with some mates and yeah to pick up the book that you've written and hold it in your hands and look at it is um it's something I've dreamt about my whole life to be honest like writing a book I think for somebody that loves to write uh it's got to be something that you just dream about it is a dream and uh so here it is and I keep looking at it all the time and I keep sort of (laughs) I should be doing the washing up and stuff. And I keep being like, oh, I'm just going to go and have a little, little look at my book. <laughs> <laughs> just so like Alex keeps finding me just sort of like holding it. <laughs> but, you know, I don't think I've ever worked. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Take it with me everywhere. Um, but I don't think I've ever worked on anything so hard and um, put so much of myself into it as well. And it's, it is a story about it's, half journalistic so you know lots of interviews lots of case studies um with people talking about various different issues uh but part autobiographical i suppose it's about growing up in the very small farming community um and the sort of traditional conservative working class values i was brought up with um and never really thought about until i moved to the city um not when I went to university I it didn't really it was when I moved to Birmingham to work for the BBC when I was 25 that mm. I really recognized the massive difference between my rural identity and my urban identity and how the two are just in conflict over so many things and um the book is about I suppose coming to terms with being neither one or the other 
and that being a difficult thing to come to terms with. I've always felt like I've been trying to get back. I've always wanted to get back to my rural roots and that farming girl I was. And that it's a horrible realization at first when you realize that you've changed and you're different. And those years spent in the city, I mean, I lived in Birmingham, I lived in Manchester and Bristol, worked for the BBC, had a very urban, metropolitan, middle-class lifestyle. Mm-hmm. And realising that that, at, you know, for the 15 years, 15, yeah, 15 years has, has changed me. And you can't go back necessarily and be, yeah. the, be the person that you were. And... Um, that's been upsetting for me and I've, I've struggled to come to terms with that and I suppose the book has helped me kind of accept that it's all right to be a bit of both it's all right to be a hybrid you can be a bit country and a bit towny and mm-hmm. uh, that's all right the, the, the lonely thing is is that you never really fit in with the tribe on either side you, you always yes. you always feel like you're a little bit outside and some of the debates and the conversations can be very binary they can be very simplistic and because you're a little bit of one and a little bit of the other, you can't really join in because you know that it's not that simple and it, it is more complicated than that and it's more nuanced. But often I don't say anything because in order to really dig into those nuances, you're going to have to kind of bore people for a few hours. <laughs> <laughs> and people don't, people in the heat of the moment, in the heat of a debate, People just want to rant and get their side across and they don't really want to know that there's all of this different layers of stuff. So often I just sort of sit there quietly or end up having a row that can never be won. So the the book is kind of about me trying to put those two sides of myself across and, and trying to get that perspective of having one foot in both camps and trying to get both sides across. Um, that's the aim anyway. I don't know if, whether I pull it off, but it's what I try to achieve. Would, would you say it's you-based or a general look at that divide? Or both. A bit of both? Both, definitely a bit of both. So I'd say half of it is taking the views and opinions that I know are out there because I'm a journalist and I listen to them all the time. Uh, and then talking generally about that. So it, it, is, it does generalise, you know, it, it very much takes a general look at these things. But then to drill into the specifics, it's kind of my story and my experiences and anecdotes and things like that. But it's not a heavy read. It's, uh, it's, it's a book that's got some funny bits in it, I hope, and lots of anecdotes. And it's written in, a, in the way that I talk. It's not an academic yeah. book and it's not highbrow. Um, I couldn't write. I couldn't write a highbrow book if I tried, anyway. So, <laughs> but it's yeah. So it's a book, and you know, working. You know, lots of people in the farming industry say, "Oh, I never read." Like my dad's never read a book. And, well, I'll um, tell you now, I've never read a book. Yeah, yeah. loads. But yeah. it's completely normal. Loads of people, and I'm. I don't read that many. I'm a really slow reader, and that I've got this massive imposter syndrome about being an author because I'm worried I'm going to go to all these authory events and people are going to go so t- tell us what writers really inspire you and I'm just going to be like oh god I read about three books a year because I'm like a snail <laughs> hey <laughs> can I be more inspiration there <laughs> oh, I'm just like oh god so um you know I think that that's perfectly fine and I've, I've tried to write a book for people that don't read 
people that say they don't like reading will hopefully enjoy reading this and and the reason I, I, I hope that is when I did my Nuffield report um, I was at the Nuffield conference and a farmer from the Orkneys um, beef farmer from high up there he came and talked to me and uh, he says I've never read a book I never read newspapers I never read but I sat down with your Nuffield report and I read it from cover to cover and I really loved it and I was like well if I can get that chap to read my Nuffield yeah. report hopefully I can get so I've, I've already messaged him and been like, well, if you like my Nuffield report, maybe you'll read my book. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that's the hope anyway. And, I mean, that's that's quite a compliment, isn't it, really? Oh, uh, it's the biggest compliment I've ever had, really. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. That's, that's brilliant. Um, would you say, you've called it the relationship crisis, that makes you think most definitely negative. Um would you say it was negative? Would what what I don't obviously you don't want to give too much away, but uh, what did you sort of draw? What conclusions did you draw from it, from re- writing the book? I guess when you look at when you look at groups and ideologies and the tribal stuff, the belief system stuff. When you look at it at that level, there is a divide, and it is negative, and it is a relationship crisis. Yes. When you break it down to people and individuals and stories, there's, it's not that it's, it's, not, it's not a crisis. A, it, it totally disappears. Right. Because the, the individuals that I talk to, um, I've, ne- I've never actually, I've never actually met an individual person who is actually like what we see on social media and is that in, what's the word, that sort of polarised in their thinking and, you know, will not look at any other point of view. And maybe I've been lucky, but most people are not like that. But when they start getting into their groups and their echo chambers and their little cliques, they start to become like that. And that's what's created the relationship crisis. But when you start breaking it down to individuals, I do find that it's so much more positive and um, feel good. And you realise there's a lot more to be happy about than than angry about. Um, so that's probably how I'd answer that. Yeah. Well, I mean, you, you never see an activist on their own, do you? Um, they're no, just a person. Not. You know, activism sort of comes in groups and you know, people can be passionate about the thing they believe in yeah and you can maybe see that as an activist but in general the sort of militant activism if you will is normally as a group um and and i'm not anti i'm not anti-activist you know no no, we we need activism in order to drive change and the way i see it there there are different types of people in the world like i actually envy activists i wish i could be like that but i'm not i'm just not wired that way I'm far more of a diplomat and the way I see it is the world needs activists to make us all lift our heads up and go oh there's a problem oh god we should probably sort it out and if you didn't have activists kind of shaking us going wake up you know we wouldn't get anything done so we need activists but we also just as importantly need diplomats and we need people that can bring people together and have constructive conversation and kind of say, right, okay, what are we going to do? And um, and I sometimes feel that in whether it's social media, wh- whatever the drivers are for it, 
We've come to an age where the activists have probably got just a little bit too much of the attention and the diplomats who are equally important haven't quite got enough of the attention. And, you know, that's because activists are probably more interesting to watch, aren't they? they well, it sells better, doesn't it? I mean, sells so much better. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's an interesting one. I mean, I have very much more on the diplomat side myself. I've always sort of been of the opinion, you know, why fight fire with fire and you can use water? You know, it's a, just let's have a chat about it, see where we go. But you're right. I'd never considered the sort of side that to get to that chat, you have to have the activist pushing it. That's, that's a, yeah, it's a cool thought. Um, so for any of you guys that are either bookworms already or, as Anna's just said, not bookworms, um, because I am going to read it. I'm gonna. I'm gonna. I'll probably speak to you in like 2026 and be like, first chapter is great. I'm getting there. Um, <laughs> yeah. you know, <laughs> but we'll, we'll maybe get there. Um, have a look. Uh, look out for for Anna's new book, Divide. Uh, also follow Anna on Instagram if you want to see any more information about it. Jones the Journal is uh, Anna's Instagram, and it's been great, Anna, to sort of go through your life from start to finish. Even if I did say the wrong phrase earlier on. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and sort of talk, talk about talk about your book, the sort of reason that this originally came about. Um, but if you have listened to the podcasts to the end, you might know this. If you haven't, you won't know it. Don't feel pressured at all. Uh, there's two questions that finish every podcast. Uh, the first one being, where do you see yourself in five years? And uh, also, if you had any tips for someone coming into, well, let's look at journalism, maybe even as an author, uh, what would they be? <clears throat> okay, I'm going to take the... the- five year one seconds because oh, I live in fear of that question I'll tell you why in a minute um my advice for somebody is for some reason agricultural journalism has never been seen as very sexy to journalism students and graduates they always want to go and do economics or crime or foreign correspondent or education health pretty much anything, but agriculture has had this horrible reputation as a bit of a kind of backwater and where a journalism career goes to die. And I know that that is true. I've come across that attitude at the BBC and it is so wrong. It's so misguided. This rural, rural affairs and agriculture has been the most rewarding genre to work in because it taps into amazing subjects, environment, food, psychology, you know, the mental health around it is huge at the moment. Um, There is so much that it sort of feeds into. And if you're an ambitious young journalist, think about giving it a go because you can make a hell of a career out of it. So that would be that would be my advice to a young journalist Um, where I see myself in five years. I don't know. And I, I never have known. And I've never been someone that really has a plan had ambitions work ambitions um but it's a source of uh it's probably what me and my partner argue about the most is he's a planner he he needs a plan and he needs to know where he's going what we're doing and what we're aiming for i'm a drifter a trundler and never really know and um that is frustrating and it hasn't landed very well in job interviews because I always sort of like fumble around and blag it and never really know. Um, but I've, I've got to this point, 40. <laughs> there we go again. <laughs> and I've never and I've never really known the answer to that question yet. And life has turned out pretty all right. So 
I'm going to carry on with not really knowing. I, yeah, I think that's good. I mean, it's, it's interesting when you say that. I'm almost like a mix of yourself and your partner in that sense. I am, you ask any of my colleagues, I'm like a spreadsheet nerd. I've got timetables of everything. I know exactly when everything is. I know when this podcast goes out and I know when the other ones do. Sometimes at the start, I pretend I don't know, so I look normal, but I actually know exactly <laughs> the time. <laughs> oh God, I'm um, not like that at all. If you but, saw, but, if you saw but, my email... Two months away. After the only thing I've I've got the podcast ready for like something like three months. Apart from that, I'm just like I'm doing tomorrow and see what happens. <laughs> this is like a mix of the two. Um, yeah, that, that's a good answer. We've never had anyone say that, and it's absolutely the truth for a lot of people. Um, that you know we don't all have to know what's coming. Um, yeah. but no, it's been it's been great to chat. It's been great having you on. I hope yeah, you've really enjoyed, enjoyed your it. time as well. Yeah, I really good, have. Good. It's been fascinating and such a lovely chat. Thank you very much for having me. No, it's been a, been a pleasure. And uh, thank you to everyone for listening again. Um, you will have seen today three little videos of myself, uh, either dressed funny, uh, using reading The Scottish Farmer because it is our new, uh, new sponsor of the podcast. Uh, so thank you very much for coming along and we shall see you next week. Cheers. Thank you very much, Wallace. Cheers, Anna. I'll speak to you later. Well, that's it. Another R2Cast finished, another agricultural mind opened up. And I would just like to say that getting these guests on board uh, does take time uh, and it always has done, but I've now went weekly and with that comes even more time required. And I would just like to finally thank once more The Scottish Farmer for sponsoring the show and making that much more possible. Please be sure to get in touch if you've any ideas of people you'd like to see on the podcast or maybe ideas you have for me presenting better, because I definitely do require that. See you in the next one.